Section 8 of Historic Waterways 600 Miles of Canoeing Down the Rock, Fox, and Wisconsin Rivers by Reuben Gold Thwaites. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jonathan Moore. Historic Waterways. Six Hundred Miles of Canoeing Down the Rock, Fox, and Wisconsin Rivers by Reuben Gold Thwaites. The Rock River. Chapter 6. An Ancient Mariner. The clock in a neighboring kitchen was striking six as we reached the lower ferry landing. The grass in the streets and under the old elms was as wet with dew as though there had been a heavy shower during the night. The village fishermen were just pulling in to the little pier, returning from an early morning trip to their trout lines downstream. In a long wooden cage which they towed astern was a fifty-pound sturgeon, together with several large catfish. They kindly hauled their cage ashore to show us the monsters, which they said would probably be shipped alive to a Chicago restaurant which they occasionally furnished with curiosities in their line. These fishermen were rough-looking fellows in their battered hats and ragged, dirty overcoats, with faces sadly in need of water and a shave. They had a sad, pinched-up appearance as well, as though the dense fog, which was just now yielding to the influence of the sun, had penetrated their bones and given them the chills. On engaging them in friendly conversation about their calling, they exhibited good manners and some knowledge of the outer world, their business, they said, was precarious and, as we could well see, involved much exposure and hardship. Sometimes it meant a start at midnight, often amid rainstorms, fogs, or chilling weather, with a hard pull back again upstream, for their lines were all of them below Grand Detour, but to return with an empty boat sometimes their luck was harder yet. Knocking about in this way all of the year around, for the winters were similarly spent upon the lower waters and bayous of the Mississippi, neither of them was ever thoroughly well. One was consumptively inclined, he told me, and being an old soldier was receiving a small pension. A claim agent had him in hand, however, and his thoughts ran largely upon the prospects of an increase by special legislation. He seemed to have but little doubt that he would ultimately succeed. When he came into this looked-for fortune, he said he would quit knocking round and killin' myself fishin', settle down in grand detour for the balance of his days, raising his own garden sass, pigs, and cow, and some fine day would make a trip in his boat to the old home in Indiana where I was raised and listed in the war. His face fairly gleamed with pleasure as he thus dwelt upon the flowers of fancy which the pension agent had cultivated within him, and W. sympathetically exclaimed, when we had swung into the stream and bidden farewell to these men who followed the calling of the apostles, that were she a congressman, she would certainly vote for the fisherman's claim and make happy one more heart in grand detour. Now commences the great bend of the Rock River. The water circuit is fourteen miles, the distance gained being but six by land. The stream is broad and shallow, between palisades densely surmounted with trees and covered thick with vines, great willow islands freely intersperse the course, 
Everywhere are evidence of ice flows, which have blazed the trees and strewn the islands with fallen trunks and driftwood. A tornado could not have created more general havoc. The visible houses, few of them inviting an appearance, are miles apart. As had been foretold at the village, the outlook for lodgings in this dismal region is not at all encouraging. It was well that we had stopped at Grand Detour. Below the bend, where the country is more open, though the banks are still deep cut, the highway to Dixon skirts the river, and for several miles we kept company with the stage. Dixon was sighted at ten o'clock. A circus had pitched its tents upon the northern bank, just above the dam, near where we landed for the carry, and a crowd of small boys came swarming down the bank to gaze upon us, possibly imagining at first that our outfit was part of the show. They accompanied us at a respectful distance as we pulled the canoe up a grassy incline and down through the vine-clad arches of a picturesque old ruin of a mill. Below the dam we rode over to the town, about where the famous Pioneer Ferry used to be. It was in the spring of 1826 that John Bowles opened a trail from Peoria to Galena by the way of the present locality of Dixon, thus shortening a trail which had been started by one Kellogg the year before, but crossed the rock a few miles above. The sight of Dixon at once sprang into wide popularity as a crossing place, Indians being employed to do the ferrying. Their manner was simple. Lashing two canoes abreast, the wheels of one side of a wagon were placed in one canoe, and the opposite wheels in the other. The horses were made to swim behind. In 1827 a Peoria man named Bigordis erected a small shanty here, and had half-finished a ferry-boat when the Indians, not favoring competition, burned the craft on its stalks, and advised Bigordis to return to Peoria. Being a wise man, he returned. The next year Joe Ogie, a Frenchman, one of a race that the red men loved, and having a squaw for his wife, was permitted to build a scow and thenceforth Indians were no longer needed there as common carriers. By the time of the Black Hawk War, Dixon, from whom the subsequent settlement was named, ran the ferry, and the crossing station had henceforth a name in history. A trail in those early days was quite as important as a railroad is today. Settlements sprang up along the improved Kellogg's Trail, and Dixon was the center of interest in all northern Illinois. Indeed, it being for years the only point where the river could be crossed by ferry, Dixon was as important a landmark to the settlers of the southern half of Wisconsin, who desired to go to Chicago, as any within their own territory. Footnote. See Mrs. Kinsey's Wow Bun for a description of the difficulties of travel in the early day via Dixon's Ferry. End footnote. The Dixon of today shelters 4,000 inhabitants and has two or three busy mills although it is noticeable that along the water power there are some half-dozen mill properties that have been burned, torn down, or deserted, which does not look well for the manufacturing prospects of the place. The land along the river banks is a flat prairie some half-mile in width, with rolling country beyond, sprinkled with oak groves. The banks are of black, sandy loam, from twelve to twenty feet high, based with sandy beaches, the shores are now and then cut with deep ravines, at the mouths of which are fine gravelly beaches, sometimes forming considerable spits. These indicate that the dry, barren gullies, 
the gutters of the hillocks, while innocent enough in a drought, sometimes rise to the dignity of torrents, and suddenly pour great volumes of drainage into the rapidly filling river, so often described in the journals of early travelers through this region, as the dark and raging rock. This sort of scenery, varied by occasional limestone palisades, the interesting and picturesque feature of the rock, from which it derives its name at the hands of the aborigines, extends down to beyond Stirling. This city, reached at 3.50 p.m., is a busy place of 10,000 inhabitants, engaged in miscellaneous manufactures. Our portage was over the south and dry end of the dam. We were helped by three or four bright, intelligent boys, who were themselves carrying over a punt, preparatory to a fishing expedition below. Amid the hundreds of boys whom we met at our various portages, these well-bred sterling lads were the only ones who even offered their assistance. Very likely, however, the reason may be traced to the fact that this was Saturday and a school holiday. The boys at the weekday carries were the riffraff who are allowed to loaf upon the river banks when they should be at their schoolroom desks. While mechanically pulling a fisherman's stroke downstream, I was dreamily reflecting upon the necessity of enforced popular education, when W., vigilant at the steersman's post, mischievously broke in upon the brown study with, Como's next station, twenty minutes for supper. And sure enough, it was a quarter past six, and there was Como nestled upon the edge of the high prairie bank. I went up into the hamlet to purchase a quart of milk for supper, and found it a little dead-alive community of perhaps one hundred and twenty-five people. There is the brick shell of a fire-gutted factory, with several abandoned stores, a dozen houses from which the paint had long since scaled, a rather smart-looking schoolhouse, and two brick dwellings of ancient pattern, the homes of well-to-do farmers, while here and there were grass-grown depressions, which I was told were once the cellars of houses that had been moved away. On the return to the beach, a bevy of open-mouthed women and children accompanied me, plying questions with a simplicity so rare that there was no thought of impertinence. W. was talking with the old grey-haired ferryman, who had been transporting a team across as we had landed beside his staging. The old man had stayed behind, avowedly to mend his boat, with a stone for a hammer, but it was quite apparent that curiosity kept him, rather than the needs of his scow. He confided to us that Como, which was indeed prettily situated upon a bend of the river, had once been a prosperous town, but the railroad went to some rival place, and the familiar story, the dam at Como rotted, and the village fell into its present dilapidated state. It is the fate of many a small but ambitious town upon a river, settled originally because of the river highway. The railroads that have nearly killed the business of water transportation did not care to go there because it was too far out of the short-cut path selected by the engineers between two more prominent points. Thus, the community is sidetracked, to use a bit of railway slang, and a sidetracked town becomes, in the new civilization which cares nothing for the rivers, but clusters along the iron ways, a town as dead as a doornail. We had luncheon on a high bank just out of sight of Como, by the time we had reached a point three or four miles below the village, it was growing dark, and time to hunt for shelter. While I walked, or rather ran, along the north bank looking for a farmhouse, W. guided the canoe down a particularly rapid current. 
it was really too dark to prosecute the search with convenience. I was several times misled by clumps of trees, and fruitlessly climbed over board or crawled under barbed wire fences, and often stumbled along the dusty highway which at times skirted the bank. It was over a mile before an undoubted windmill appeared, dimly silhouetted against the blackening sky above a dense growth of river timber a quarter of a mile down the stream. A whistle, and W. shot the craft into the mouth of a black ravine, and clambered up the bank at the serious risk of torn clothing from the thicket of blackberry vines and locust saplings which covered it. Together we emerged upon the highway, determined to seek the windmill on foot, for it would have been impossible to sight the place from the river, which was now from the overhanging trees on both shores and islands as dark as a cavern. Just as we stepped upon the narrow road, which we were only able to distinguish because the dust was lighter in color than the vegetation, a farm team came rumbling along over a neighboring culvert and rolled into view from behind a fringe of bushes. The horses jumped and snorted as they suddenly sighted our dark forms and began to plunge. The women gave a mild shriek and awakened a small child which one of them carried in her arms. I essayed to snatch the bits of the frightened horses to prevent them from running away, for the women had dropped the lines, while W. called out, asking if there was a good farmhouse where the windmill was. The team quieted down under a few soothing strokes, but the women persisted in screaming and uttering incoherent imprecations in German, while the child fairly roared. So I returned the lines to the women in charge, and we bade them Guten Nacht, as they whipped up their animals and hurried away with fearful backward glances. It suddenly occurred to us that we had been taken for footpads. We were so much amused at our adventure as we walked along, almost groping our way, that we failed to notice a farm gate on the riverside of the road until a chorus of dogs just over the fence arrested our attention. A half-dozen human voices were at once heard calling back the animals. A light shone in thin streaks through a black fringe of lilac bushes, and in front of these was the gate. Opening the creaky structure, we advanced cautiously up what we felt to be a gravel walk, under an arch of evergreens and lilacs, with the paddle ready as a club, in case of another dog outbreak. But there was no need of it, and we soon emerged into a flood of light, which proceeded from a shadeless lamp within an open window. It was a spacious white farmhouse. Upon the stoop of an L were standing, in attitudes of expectancy, a stout, well-fed, though rather sinister, expressioned elderly man, with a long gray beard, and his raw-boned, overworked wife, with two fair but dissatisfied-looking daughters, and several sons ranging from twelve to twenty years. A few moments of explanation dispelled the suspicious look with which we had been greeted, and it was soon agreed that we should, for a consideration, be entertained for the night and over Sunday, although the good woman protested that her house was topsy-turvy, all torn up with house-cleaning, which excuse, by the way, had become quite familiar by this time, having been current at every house we had thus far entered upon our journey. Bringing our canoe down to the farmer's bank, and hauling it up into the bushes, we returned through the orchard to the house, laden with baggage, our host proved to be a famous storyteller. His tales, often Munchausenese, were inclined to be ghastly, and he had an overweening fondness for inconsequential detail, like some authors of serial tales who write against space 
and tax the patience of their readers to its utmost endurance. But while one may skip the dreary pages of the novelist, the circumstantial storyteller must be borne with patiently, though the hours lag with leaden heels. In earlier days the old man had been something of a traveler, having journeyed to Illinois by steamboat on the upper lakes, from old York State. Another time he went down the Mississippi River to Natchez, working his way as a deckhand, but the crowning event of his career was his having, as a driver, accompanied a cattle train to New York City. A few years ago he tumbled down a well and was hauled up something of a cripple, so that his occupation chiefly consists in sitting around the house in an easy chair or entertaining the crowd at the crossroads store with sturdy tales of his adventures by land and sea, spiced with vigorous opinions on questions of politics and theology. The garrulity of age, a powerful imagination, and a boasting disposition are his chief stock in trade. Propped up in his great chair, with one leg resting upon a lounge and the other aiding his iron-ferruled cane in pounding the floor by way of punctuating his remarks, that ancient mariner held us with his glittering eye. We could not choose but hear. His tales were chiefly of shooting and stabbing scrapes, drownings and hangings that he claimed to have seen, dwelling upon each incident with a blood-curdling particularity worthy of the reporter of a sensational metropolitan journal. The ancient man must have fairly walked in blood through the greater part of his days, while from the number of corpses that had been fished out of the river at the head of a certain island at the foot of his orchard, and laid out in his best bedroom by the coroner, we began to feel as though we had engaged quarters at a morgue. It was painfully evident that these recitals were chestnuts in the house of our entertainer. The poor old lady had a tired-out, unhappy appearance. The dissatisfied-looking daughters yawned, and the sons talked, sotto voce, on farm matters and neighborhood gossip. Finally we tore away, much to the relief of everyone but the host, and were ushered with much ceremony into the ghostly bedchamber, the scene of so many coroner's inquests. I must confess to uncanny dreams that night, confused visions of Rock River giving up innumerable corpses, which I was compelled to assist in laying out upon the very bed I occupied. End of chapter 6 An Ancient Mariner Recording by Jonathan Moore